You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this. The first point that I'm going to talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. So you're like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that. And you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role, in a dead-end job. And that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's going to speak to you and give you visions. He's going to give you dreams about what's next. And then he's going to show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that. And those who say this. Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like a burial followed by a birth. Right. Or this. The Bible says when Jesus held up that bread on that night with his disciples, he just simply said, this would symbolize my body. As well as those who have never studied Greek but want you to believe they have. God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It's time now to join your hosts, pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. Well, all right, it's been such a long time since, my goodness, the plucked chicken has come out of the coop, but today she is roaming around, and, uh, well, she's had a little bit of time to listen to a whole bunch of things. Normally, as you know, we like to sit down with another Lutheran pastor, and the two of us listen to an evangelical sermon, where what we do is we place the crooked stick beside the straight stick. That's really what we like to do. And we like to point out the difference between the two. Obviously, by the time that you listen to an entire podcast, my goodness, you can see that the one that is bent is really bent and really just about good for nothing. But we do like to highlight the things that they say that's right on and orthodox. But I have listened to dozens and dozens and dozens of sermons, and it's just not worth you having to sit to and listen. My goodness, they are so bad. Now listen, I know that I could go over into the Reformed camp and find some things that you might enjoy listening to, but why do that? I mean, let's highlight the stuff that comes from American pulpits left and right but there's just not a lot there. And I'll give you an example. Now, granted, this is not a sermon, but this is somewhat of the craziness that's out there. Oh, this is this is when we were at Cape Cod, and I said, if you guys, it was Gideon's Army and the Christian Revolution. Both of these organizations were launched by Juan O'Savin back in September of 2020. And uh, so he put all of this together, and uh, those two groups decided to meet in Cape Cod and just kind of, you know, kind of like have a family reunion of believers. And so we came together, and one gal said, well, if we're going to be at the water, and if I'm with you guys, then I want to be baptized. And so we said we would do that in the water. Well, 40 of the 80 people 
got baptized in the water. And the mm-hmm. dog you see is named Evie. And Evie became the family dog for the event. <laughs> we were there for a few days. It's powerful. Coach Dave was doing his uh, morning program from there. Um, ChristianRevolution.net was doing their Brighton program from there. I mean, it just there was just a lot happening. And mm-hmm. Evie saw the, uh, the female owner getting baptized. And when she went down, the whole video of the baptism is about And We Know because her shirt in the front has And We Know. And then the dog starts running out to her and then swims the rest of the way to get to her to be baptized with her. And when the when the dog reached her, the dog held her exactly like the dog's holding her now and never let go. It was so long. We kept saying, are you okay? Can you keep, because the dog's not, not you know, 10 or 15 pounds. Right. And so we said, are you okay? And she just, the owner couldn't quit crying. She said, this experience, this experience. And the dog, when we went to tour the face monument, mm-hmm. the dog had known me the whole time. And that's how I know the dog is heavy. And we get to the face monument and we're doing the tour of the face monument the very next day. And that dog, every time someone started talking while I was giving the tour of the face monument and telling them everything that was happening, mm-hmm. Evie would go up to that person and bark right in their face <laughs> because Evie wanted everybody to listen how important this was. Something happened when that dog got baptized. I, 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 in all these years, I have never been with an owner whose dog runs out to be let me get baptized with you and it changed the personality the dog was a nice dog but the dog wasn't a focused dog and mm-hmm. once that dog was baptized that dog was standing around listening to everybody's testimonies listen and every time people were talking about their baptism the dog was right there sitting next to him it that dog <laughs> that dog changed it was oh, just wow. flat out amazing <laughs> oh you see what i mean it's just garbage like this that has been vomited out from the pits of hell onto the american public which of course we will wrap in a bow and export all around the world Could you sit and listen to that garbage any longer? I don't think so. I certainly can't. But in saying that, I was sent a podcast of teachings by a friend of mine. I started listening to them and early on was somewhat captivated by what they were saying. There was substance there. However, the more and more I got into it, I just thought, man, This guy is still missing the boat. Now, he's a guy who starts out in Genesis. And uh, listen, Genesis, it really does set the foundation, obviously, for the rest of the book. And so I was, again, very interested in what he had to say. But as I continued to listen, I realized that there was something seriously missing. And so with that being said, let's do this. And it's going to take a great deal of patience on your part and mine because I've listened to him about half a dozen times. But let's let this guy lay the foundation for what he's trying to do. And then what we'll do is we'll go in and we will really try to see where he's still 
missing the boat. So with that said, let's get right to it. Welcome to the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we'll be talking about what we hope to accomplish with this podcast in the years to come. So welcome, Marty. Thank you. It's good to be here. And this is kind of a pilot episode, so we're not going to be here too long, but we just kind of want to talk about the story uh, that started Baymont. What, uh, what set this whole thing off in motion? Well, like a lot of people, this would probably be the shorter version of the story without all the nitty gritty details, but like a lot of people, I had, a, um, I had my own, I don't know if you want to call it a crisis of faith necessarily. I had a moment where I realized that the story as I had been handed it, and by that I mean the story of the text, the story of faith, um, the, just the experience of growing up in the church, which I had my whole life, uh, wasn't working for me anymore. And it uh, wasn't necessarily that I had a, a space to process that. I didn't have a space to ask a lot of those questions or a space because all the spaces just said the same thing. And I didn't know what to do with a lot of that stuff. And so through the course of that um, just learning experience, I had uh, I ran into a uh, a few teachers. Um, one of them was a teacher I'd had even as a, uh, a younger child and never realized exactly who he was, but came back around to him later. His name was Ray Vanderlaan, uh, based out of Michigan. And he had done a bunch of videos I had studied as I was younger. And all the teachers that I was studying at that point that seemed to be offering me something that helped uh, was looking at the scriptures through a, a much more Jewish hermeneutic um, they're looking at it through this perspective of this is a Jewish book written by Jewish authors to a Jewish audience. Uh, and they're asking just a different set of questions, which made a, a whole lot more sense to me. So through that, I, I got back connected with Ray and, uh, and that was a really big journey. I remember in 2008 getting to go study over in Israel for the first time and then returning in 2010 to go back to Israel and then go to Turkey. With him saying just that, and we're not even a minute in, I was hooked. And the reason I say that is because that's exactly what's happened to me. And it wasn't until I understood the sacraments, it wasn't until I understood law and gospel, it wasn't until I understood being a theologian of glory versus being a theologian of the cross. It wasn't until I understood the doctrine of vocation, all of the Lutheran distinctives, actually, until things began to make sense. I'm not the prettiest pumpkin in the patch, and I'm certainly not the brightest bulb in the menorah. I thought, oh, wow, this guy has discovered many of the things that I've discovered. I mean, take, for instance... I was just reading today in a book that I go back to again and again. I've had it for years. It's called The Bible and the Liturgy. And on page 208, which is the introduction of chapter 13, this is what it says. On the gains of contemporary exegesis is to have shown how the Gospels are filled with allusions to the sacraments. As we love to see the Gospels not only as being historical documents on the life of Christ, but also as being the expression of the faith and life of the Christian community. They seem to be constructed on two planes. The realities of the life of Christ in his earthly existence become also figures in his glorious life in the church, particularly as this is expressed in her sacramental life. 
So the allusions to the living water, or to the washings, to the ears of wheat rubbed in the hand, or to the multiplications of the bread, take on baptismal and Eucharistic echoes. Now folks, i got to tell you, there was a time in my life I would read that paragraph and think, you you got to be kidding me. But it is that stunted, dare I say, retarded perspective and understanding which led to the crisis of faith. And it only was when the Lord led me, and I should say kicking and screaming to the truth of the sacraments, that everything began to make sense, even just reading my Bible. He continues on. And it wasn't necessarily that I had a a space to process that. I didn't have a space to ask a lot of those questions or a space because all the spaces just said the same thing. And I didn't know what to do with a lot of that stuff. And so through the course of that, um, just learning experience, I had, uh, I ran into, uh, a few teachers. Um, one of them was a teacher I had had even as a, uh, a younger child and never realized exactly who he was, but came back around to him later. His name was Ray Vanderlaan, uh, based out of Michigan. And he had done a bunch of videos I had studied uh, as I was younger. And, All right, so dropping this name, Ray Vanderland, I mean, my goodness, I studied him as well, and I thought the videos, and you can check them out, my goodness, I mean, he's got a website, or at least something that is associated with him, entitled That the World May Know. I saw them on VHS, for crying out loud, I remember watching those VHS presentations. And I have to say, they were extremely helpful to me before I took my first trip to Israel. So I'm still very interested in what this guy has to say, but yet there's nothing yet of sacraments. That's okay. He's just laying it out there. So let's let him. And all the teachers that I was studying at that point that seemed to be offering me something that helped uh, was looking at the scriptures through a, a much more Jewish hermeneutic. Um, they're looking at it through this perspective of this is a Jewish book written by Jewish authors to a Jewish audience. Uh, and they're asking just a different set of questions, which made a, a whole lot more sense to me. So through that, I, I got back connected with Ray and, uh, and that was a really big journey. I remember in 2008 getting to go study over in Israel for the first time and then returning in 2010 to go back to Israel and then go to Turkey. And uh, I remember coming back from those trips with this. I'm a teacher by and people will figure that out if they don't know me real quickly, but I am a teacher at heart and I had all of this new, not just data, but all of this new learning I wanted to share Um, And I had a new perspective on discipleship that I wanted to try and had a really hard time figuring out where I was going to do that within the church. Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't catch that the first time or the second or maybe the third. That sounds scary to me, what he just said. He's just come back. He's got all this new teaching. Somehow or another, he doesn't call it data, but, you know, we'll let that slide. It is new data. And he wants to teach it because he's a teacher. I mean, praise God. But he can't go to his pastor about it 
There's no circuit visitor, say, like there is in the LCMS. There's no bishop or what we call a district president that he could go to and say, hey, listen, I've got this uh, new perspective that I'd like to teach. He's just going to create a discipleship program and see who he can attract with this newfound perspective. Wow. So what's that mean? It means he's going rogue. That's what it means. Now, see, Pastor Bruss would have picked up on that immediately. Again, it takes me numerous times, and then finally, you know, maybe, hypothetically, I'll pick up on it. Which, by the way, you might not know, maybe you do, Pastor Bruss has moved on to the greener pastures of teaching at Fort Wayne Seminary. For crying out loud, he needs to be the president of the seminary, if you ask me. But he is there teaching young skullfuls of mush how to stay away from the sacramentarians and all of the teaching that we have heard over and over again here on the Pluck Chicken podcast. And here's a question. Did Pastor Bruss, in all of his geniusness, did he go rogue? Did he just say, I'm just going to set up a you know, a college ministry or some sort of ministry and just begin to teach just without a duly appointed call? Of course not. He was called to Fort Wayne Seminary to teach. Yet this guy that we're listening to, he just gets this newfound approach and this new perspective, and darn it, he's going to find an outlet somehow, some way. I know you think I'm being too critical of this guy already, but I know where he's going. And so I'm just setting you up for it. And if you disagree with me, then start your own podcast. And and so just through the struggle of trying to figure out what would that look like, uh, I remember at one point... Um, uh, there had been some guys from an organization called Impact Campus Ministries that had been asking me to come on board, and I had no desire to do campus ministry whatsoever. Um, but then years later, as I went through this uh, kind of uh, finding myself kind of a moment, um, I remember lamenting to God, like, what I really want is I want a group of people that are... All right, so I get it. I mean, my goodness, it is a Jewish book written by Jewish authors, primarily to a Jewish audience that extends far beyond, obviously, the Jews. Uh, I remember when I went to Israel uh, the first time, and I was in Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, all the tour buses are going to go to the Temple of Pan, the Temple of Pan is where Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And right off to the side of the ruins of this temple is this huge cave. Well, guess what that cave is called? It's called the Gates of Hades. So where Jesus says the Gates of Hades will not prevail, referring to this confession that Peter has just made, it's real. It's right there. 
you can go online. I mean, I encourage you to do so. Google images uh, you, uh, with uh, Gates of Hades, and you'll see it. And there's even a plaque in front of this cave that says the Gates of Hades. And this is where all kinds of pagan worship and idolatry took place back in the day. So, yes, I get it in more ways than that about what he is saying, that there is a Jewish, quote-unquote, hermeneutic that needs to be applied because the Scriptures are not American, written to Americans to empower their own individual lives. For instance, and you can argue this with me if you would like to, even though I'm not going to believe you, but the tour guide on the trip that I participated in, when I said something about a land flowing with milk and honey, he said, yes, it's goat's milk and date honey. <laughs> goat's milk and date honey. What do you think I was thinking of? Well, I was thinking of exactly what you're thinking, cow's milk and bee honey. No, no, that's that's not what it means. I mean, it's still a, a prosperous land and a land that God was going to provide, but just that date honey and goat's milk, it's a completely different thought, and it certainly is a Jewish hermeneutic. So with that being said, I like, again, what this guy's laying down, but man, oh man, it's still not enough. That is, unless you're dealing with nuclear bombs and hand grenades. I really want, as I want a group of people that are adults, but they're not really adults yet. Like they, they can think for themselves, but they don't have mortgages. And, they don't, and it struck me that the demographic I was really talking about was college students. So I, I joined Impact Ministries um, in 2010. I was hired and moved up here to the Palouse and started a program that we called Bema Discipleship. And uh, my heart was to try out some of these ideas, um, to try to get as, well, I don't know if I would say as close, but to get closer to what we see in first century discipleship. Mm. See, there it is, yeah. He's trying it out. When I learned in Israel about first century discipleship, I thought we could be doing that here today. It would work in our culture, at least some of the ideas. So um, that's what I wanted to start. And so a big piece of that was uh, doing a study, uh, uh, a two-year study where we would deconstruct our understanding of the scriptures, because that's what had to happen for me. I remember when I went to Israel, I had to I had a file cabinet of images, and I had to dump them all out and start all over again. And it took me a while to come to grips with that, um, but that's what I had to do. And I knew we couldn't do this program without trying to do some of the th same things with the students. And so we wanted to create a space uh, where we could ask some of those questions, we could deconstruct our understanding of the scriptures, and we could learn how to ask better questions as we read the Bible. Now again... I do want to point out, same thing happened to me. I mean, when you come to an understanding of the sacraments, and then you go to your library, I mean, for a pastor, and you know, not just a pastor, a lot of people, but especially for a pastor, I mean, books are our tools. 
And uh, when I had my crisis of faith and then learned the Lutheran distinctives, and you have to go back through all of your books and, as he said, through all of your files and just get out the circular file and just start tossing because it's not useful. It's a, it's a uh, you know, a, a hammer without a handle. So that's what uh, Bema, that's where it kind of started and, and the desires that drove it. So the, the Jewish hermeneutic that you uh, kind of stumbled upon, that's fairly new in the church. All right, so there you go. The Jewish hermeneutic. I think I think you've already picked up on that. That that is his newfound perspective that he's very excited about. And listen again. I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. I love that perspective too. But the perspective that he misses. I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. And I'm sure you already know what it is. Jesus says, "You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they." which testify of me. Jesus says those Old Testament passages speak about, point to, typify, prefigure. They all point to me. And that is where this guy is going to drop the ball. Does he give useful information? Sure, I've benefited from it. There's been a couple of times that he said some things that I thought, wow, that's, a, that's, that's interesting. But there's no Jesus. There is no Jesus. I have listened to every one of his, let's just, I don't know, lecture, uh, presentation, episode, whatever. I've listened to every episode that he has had through the book of Genesis. And Jesus gets a Casual mention here and there. I know I've used this illustration before, but the Bible is like those books, uh, the Where's Waldo books, where Waldo, the little cartoon character, he's somewhere on that page. I mean, this is a magnificent page with all kinds of things for your eye to look at. And, and it's big. It's a really big page. And here I am with my daughter looking for Waldo. And she would get so excited when she would find Waldo. And I would too, because I couldn't find him. The guy that we're listening to, he's going to open the Bible, Genesis. And it's like, he's not looking for Jesus. And as you listen to him, I'm sure you're going to be just like me. You're going to be standing up, pointing, jumping up and down even, saying, there he is. There he is right there. Can't you see him? This is not something that Christians later made up. Jesus said it to all Bible students. These scriptures, apart from me, you're not going to get it. But those scriptures, all of them, testify of me. So that really is the chief hermeneutic when you come to the text. Where's Waldo? Where's Jesus? Sometimes he jumps off the page. And yes, sometimes sometimes he is very well hidden. But he nevertheless is there. 
that's fairly new in the church. Somewhat. Yeah, it's kind of been around, but we didn't really know. Um, as far as I understand the conversation, we didn't really know what to do with it. There's a guy by the name of Jacob Neusner that in a lot of ways uh, we're all indebted to. He was this Jewish scholar and he was, uh, this is really oversimplified by the way, but uh, he was he was trying to figure out the evolution of Jewish thought he believed had been impacted by Christian thought. And so he had brought these Christians into the Jewish conversation to try to get their perspectives. And again, oversimplified, that conversation evolved to the to the place where the Christian scholars, they were really Catholic scholars, uh, were, to be more specific, they were asking the questions, why are you asking us about this? And through that conversation, Neusner was able to explain, well, 2,000 years ago, Jews thought this, but now we think this, and we think that your thought influenced that, which made the Catholics, Christian scholars say, well, wait a minute. If, if Jews thought that 2,000 years ago, that's the Judaism of Jesus. That changes what we should understand about what Jesus taught. And it started this larger conversation that ever since then, ever since the 70s when Neusner did this, he, uh, scholarship, Jewish and Christian scholarship really always has worked in tandem like that. Um, and because of that, it always takes about 30 to 40 years for the world of scholarship to start to impact the 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 world that you and I live in every single day. And the information age is, is only speeding up that process. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the background of where we came, came across that. We just didn't talk. It sounds ridiculous, but we, we just didn't talk. The two groups didn't talk for 1800 years. And that sounds like nonsense. But when you go back and you look at, at uh, history, it's, it's unfortunately the truth. So I'd say that's that's a big part of what uh, Bema is all about is bringing that Jewish perspective to the Christian Church, uh, raising up a new generation of people who who understand how to study. Uh, what else would you say that uh, Bema seeks to accomplish, or that you hope it accomplishes at least? I would say uh, we have four. I, I kind of have a, a tongue-in-cheek reference to four pillars within my Bema program that I hope. Um, I hope my program always kind of drives that. Uh, pillar number one, I would say, is the text. I want to have a better understanding of the Bible and the scriptures. Uh, number two is um, community. Uh, I want to, I really want to understand the importance of community in a world that's very individualistic, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, the third pillar we always would call discipleship. Um, I want to pursue discipleship the way that Jesus pursued discipleship. And then that fourth pillar, um, I would call wrestling. And when we talk about the Bema podcast and, and what we're talking about here, I would say pillars one and four is really what I would talk about. Um, Bema, the whole reason I called it Bema, if you study the different parts of a synagogue, there's a platform in the center of a synagogue that's called Bema. It's just going to be three or four inches, the slightly raised platform, and that's where you read the text from. And if you study ancient synagogue, the one thing that you see is that it's always in the center. It's not up front with a stage like our Greek audience-driven venues. The Bema in the ancient synagogue, the synagogues of Jesus' day, uh, sat in the middle. 
because the whole community came and gathered around the text. And that placement of the Bema alone spoke volumes. And I, I hope that this study isn't about my opinions. I hope it's not about doctrines. I hope it's not about creeds. I hope it's not. What I hope we do is we come here, we peel open the text, and we start to ask better questions about what the Bible is trying to say. And I hope we center this whole thing not around any of our opinions, uh, but around the text itself. And the second thing I would say, uh, that fourth pillar, um, wrestling, that's really, really important. And uh, for me to create a space where it is okay, it is okay to ask the questions. It's, it's all right to wrestle with stuff that doesn't sit well, because that stuff that doesn't sit well with us as we read the Bible is often the stuff that's where, that's where all the treasure is lied, uh, is laying buried under the surface. Um, so this is a safe, this is a safe space. Okay. I mean, he's telling us there that he's, he's saying, listen, I want you to critique this. This is a safe space. So, oh my goodness, I felt like that was just an open door for us to walk through. What do you think? But there's nothing really here for us to quote unquote critique. So with that being said, what we're going to do is he's got an episode where it's called Introductory Lesson. And I certainly was interested enough to keep listening, so here's what he said in the next episode. Welcome to the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we will be having our introductory conversation about the world of the Bible, investigating the differences between Eastern and Western perspectives. And I'm pretty excited about this. We're technically at episode zero, so we haven't really started the story yet. Uh, but this is a pretty big deal. We're laying the foundation for all of our conversations in the years ahead. So, Marty, how different are these Eastern and Western worldviews? Is this is this really that big of a deal? It's a massive deal. Um, and there are some similarities. It's like we're talking about two completely different dimensions here, but uh, this is a really big deal. Your Bible is um, its not just full of information. I know in the world, the Western world that I was uh, raised in, the Bible was full of all of this information, information about how to live, information about how to get to heaven, information about, it was full of information and data. Um, but the Bible really isn't full of data in the way we think of it. The Bible is full of pictures and images and that's foreign to the world that we're used to. So, um, these, these images that the Bible uses, it comes from a time and a culture that's really different than the culture that we're used to. Now, again, many of the things that he says, I mean, I'm drawn into, I agree with him. I mean, the Bible is written in pictures. Many times that's exactly what it describes. Uh, you can think of many on your own. I was thinking of one just on my way over to the Pluck Chicken Studios where, you know, uh, the Lord is my strong tower, and I run into that, and I'm safe in there. Again, this is a beautiful picture, and that's one of, my goodness, thousands. I mean, I don't know. I've never counted them all out, 
But again, I am reminded of the Reformation itself, how there was Luther, the preacher, there was Melanchthon, the professor, and there was Durer, the painter. If you go and take a look at his paintings that were extremely helpful to the Reformation itself, what's he doing? He's taking many of these biblical pictures and he is painting them. And, you know, the Lutheran Church makes use of these pictures, especially in Germany where you have the triptych. This is where you have those visual images behind the altar, say upon the Rarados, where there are scenes, visual scenes of salvation and what God has done to bring that salvation unto man. So with that being said, I agree with this guy. But again, don't get too sucked in just yet. Really different than the culture that we're used to. And the writers of the Bible are not writing from our world. The writers of the Bible are Hebrew, and they're Eastern uh, in nature, and they're writing to Eastern audiences. This is a very Eastern conversation that we're eavesdropping in on when we read the Bible. Um, A lot of us, I think, were raised with this idea, the Bible was written to me. The Bible was written to me. And, And yeah, in a lot of ways, on a lot of levels, like that's not inaccurate, but on a very technical level, it is because the Bible was not written uh, to you and I. The Bible was written to an, an ancient audience in an ancient context. And uh, so they're Eastern and most Christians in our culture are Greek or Western in their thought. Um, and we just think about the world in a much different way uh, than the people of the Bible do. Um, and what that means is that when we go to read the Bible, a lot of what it's doing is lost on our culture. And then as we try to explain it, um, through a Western lens, uh, we even get more lost, uh, and it even gets more messy. And, uh, so one of the things that we're going to try to do right off the bat, and like you said, this is pretty foundational is we're going to try to learn how to, to think Hebrew. We're not going to become Hebrew. That's not the goal. Uh, It's not sinful to be Western. There's nothing wrong with being Greek in our mindset. Um, But we're going to try to remember that we're dealing with a Hebrew book, Hebrew authors, and a Hebrew audience. And we're going to learn how to ask some of those questions so that we can understand it and apply it into our Western world um, so much better. All right. So it's pretty clear what he is looking to do. He is wanting to interpret the Bible through a more Jewish lens. And folks, I've got no problem with that. It's quite fascinating. I mean, how in the world can you even understand what Jesus says when he says, I go and prepare a place for you? You know this text. It's John chapter 14. Let's get the whole thing. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. This, as you know, is what Sean Hannity likes to say at the end of his broadcast or whatever. He never really finishes the verse, does he? He just says, let not your hearts be troubled. What's Jesus say? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Then, of course, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, 
Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And then he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, folks, if you don't interpret that through a Jewish understanding of how a man pays his dowry for a bride, and then he goes back to his father's house and builds upon it. He adds rooms to his father's house so that once he finishes that construction, then he makes a procession. He he goes to his bride-to-be. And that is where the wedding ceremony takes place. And he brings her back to his father's house, to this brand new area that has been expanded to make room for her, and if it be God's will, their children. It is the Garden of Eden all over again. Adam coming to his bride, Christ coming to his bride, the church, and taking her to be with him in his father's house. Now, this word in the Greek is dwelling places. But of course, as you know, most likely in the King James, it was translated as mansions. And so to our presenter's point, here's this idea of glory being filled with mansions where everybody continues this individual Christian life. I have my individual Christian life here, where the Bible is all about me and its basic instructions before leaving earth, and then I go to heaven and my mansion there, and I live my individual Christian life there. It's crazy talk, but it has permeated our Western mind. So again, I'm not opposed to going through the Bible and seeing more of the Jewish perspective. But point me, ultimately, to the author and perfecter of our souls. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Point me to him. But this guy's not going to do that. Each one of these things is a word that comes with a definition that you have to understand in order to have that conversation. Ask an Easterner, what is God like? And an Easterner is going to say, God is a fortress. God God is eagle's wings. And it still has all kinds of meaning packed into it, but for, from a completely different place. It's a picture, a poetic image that's meant to communicate. God is a fortress. How, that communicates things that we could talk about for the next 10 minutes. Uh, God is a fortress. Um, but it's not a definition, and it's not prose. So the other thing I think we could talk about, um, if we were to move on next, would be the numbers. And you think to yourself, like, how, how in the world can numbers be different? Like, numbers are the 
pretty much like the most straightforward thing we have. Um, a Greek, like you and me, uh, we think of numbers primarily as quantity. And if this is the first time you've ever run into this conversation, you're probably thinking, how else can you view a number? That's like the definition of a number as quantity. Um, but an Easterner doesn't see quantity. An Easterner sees quality and symbol. One of the ways that this comes out uh, in their world is when they go to schooling and they go uh, to take part in their education, where we would just learn math, we would learn five plus two equals seven. Uh, for them, it's books of Moses plus tablets of Moses equals days of creation is literally how in orthodox circles, uh, especially in history, they have learned when they see five apples sitting on a table. Uh, they immediately think Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because numbers and quantity isn't just quantity. It's symbolic of something else because their world is driven by pictures. And that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we can't think of numbers in any other way, right? No, not at all. In fact, you can actually overdo this quite a bit. But numbers will be one of the things we run into very, very early in our study. In fact, starting next week, we're going to run into numbers. Um, and once you kind of start to understand how a Hebrew sees numbers, a lot of people start to overdo it. They start to really see numbers everywhere and over-apply allegorically uh, numbers. But it's something you just kind of get used to how an Easterner uses numbers. And there's always a conversation to be had there. But yes, numbers are still also numbers in the Bible, too. And we don't want to take away from that. But we want to learn to ask a different set of questions when it comes to the number. And there's really not that many numbers uh, that have this qualitative meaning. And I assume we'll get to those at some future point. But once you learn them, like, it's a lot of fun. Right. Absolutely. Like, a whole other world kind of opens up. And you're right. It's not every single number you ever find everywhere. There's a list of biblical numbers. Now, if you get into some more mystical strains, like... Um, if you were to look at Kabbalah or different things like that, they're definitely going to do even more with numbers than we'll do in our study. But uh, yeah, you're right. Once you start to learn what these numbers mean, um, becomes a part of the questions that you ask. So moving on, there's um, our, our next section is on life. Like how how does the Eastern thinker think about life? One of the first things I love to talk about is eternal life. Um, they think about eternal life as something completely different uh, for the Westerner, for the Greek thinker. Um, eternal life is something detached from this world. Um, it's something that starts when this world is over. When I die, eternal life begins for a Westerner. I just had an email this week come in from somebody that was asking me about eternal life. And I kept talking about eternal life in a present tense. And they kept trying to make it compute in a future tense. Um, they kept talking about, so when I die, you're saying that I could, I'm going to go X, Y, and Z to this destination or that destination. Uh, and for an Easterner, eternal life is in this world and every world that could possibly exist um, anywhere. Eternal life is a, is a quality of life, not a quantity of life. It's life lived in harmony with God in whatever world you could find yourself in. In whatever dimension, anywhere, whenever you're living in harmony with God, you have eternal life. The word in the Hebrew is actually olam hava, uh, or in Greek, eon zoe. And both in Hebrew and in Greek, these are qualitative terms. Um, they are not quantitative. They are definitely qualitative terms. And what that means is that it's not about a linear life. It's about a kind of life. 
um, that we're experiencing, a kind of life that goes on forever, the kind of life that always has been and always will be because it's true. Uh, and that's just a different way to think about think about life. Um, the other way that they, uh, when it comes to life, uh, is the way that they interact with the community versus the individual. For the Greek, uh, you focus on the individual. Life is about me. Uh, it's about me and my experience. Um, sometime pay attention to our worship music, which is getting better at this, by the way. Um, it's not quite as bad as it used to be in like the early 2000s and the 90s, but every worship song was about me and Jesus and Jesus and me and me and God and God and I and I worship you. And it's, it was so individualistic. And yet the Hebrew has a sense of community. Um, So if you were to talk to a Greek about sin, a Greek would immediately start thinking about their own sins as an individual. But if you ask an Easterner, uh, a Hebrew thinker from the Bible about sin, um, there's a really good chance they're going to focus on the community and start with all the ways that they as a community have sinned. Because when you read the Bible, this is what the scriptures keep um, harping on is they as a people, not as individuals, they as a people have dropped the ball. In some ways, I hate to interject because what he's saying, I mean, I completely agree with and most likely you do too. What have we been doing for years? We've been highlighting how individualistic, how pietistic American evangelicalism has actually become. It has gone completely off the rails. So I love what he's saying. I think you can applaud along with me. But when he talks about the community, that there is a sense of community, I agree with that too. Now, as a Lutheran, I think the best answer, most Lutherans, when it comes to a dichotomy of either or, they're going to say both. It's both and. This is exactly what I would say in regard to what we just heard. Yes, there is a greater sense of community within this Hebrew Eastern understanding. I get it, and I I totally agree. I just want to point out something I read just a couple of days ago in my devotions. This is Psalm 119, longest psalm in the Bible, as you know. The psalmist says, make thy face to shine upon thy servant, referring to me, He says, and teach me thy statutes. But then he says in the very next verse, rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. So is it individualistic? Is it community? It's both. And this is why we are taught to pray by our Lord Jesus Christ, not my Father who art in heaven. Yeah, our Father. There is a sense of community that the American evangelicals have completely thrown off. I'll give you another example. In the Lutheran Church, and we're not alone in this, but at least in the Lutheran Church, there is a time in the liturgy where the pastor turns to the people and says, let us together, community, Pray for the whole church of God in Christ Jesus and for all people according to their needs. And there are petitions that are raised to the Lord. 
petitions that the pastor speaks on behalf of all of the people present, and they include all pastors. Petitions include all missionaries. Petitions at times includes all civil servants, from the president and the governor and to the magistrates, all of them. Now, this is something you are not going to find in your evangelical church. You're just not. It really is more about me, that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But the Lutherans fully grasp that it's not one or the other. It, it really is both. So again, I sit on the sidelines and am cheering right along with what I'm hearing. Um, then there's, there's error and sin. This is always fun. Uh, how do we think about sin that's different um, in the Greek and the Hebrew? For, for the Western thinker, sin is about wrong belief or incorrect thinking. It emphasizes what a person knows. When you're thinking about error, if you're thinking about something as an error, you're thinking about wrong belief or incorrect thinking, you're thinking about what you know. For the Easterner, uh, error and sin is about wrong behavior and emphasizes what a person does. So uh, one of the places we go whenever we take students over to Israel is we stop at a shop in Jerusalem, Shurashim shop, and it's run by a guy by the name of Moshe. And whenever Moshe talks about sin, he says, uh, for you Western Christians, uh, sin is something that's in you that you've got to get rid of. Um, for us, sin is something that I do. So how do I get rid of sin? I just stop doing it. And it's just interesting to see the two worlds collide there in the way that we view sin and what it is and how it, and how it's dealt with. Moving along, we want to cover the difference in the thinking of, of God himself, um, who God is, how we talk about him. Yeah. So, uh, for, for God, we could start with existence, uh, is what we're going to find on our, on, on your document there. And for an, for a Greek thinker, they're often trying to prove the existence of God. But what's so difficult about that when you read the Bible is the Bible is never interested in proving the existence of God because the Bible is Eastern and Eastern people don't ask that question. Uh, Eastern, the Eastern worldview assumes the existence of God. Is that still true today? Yeah. In a lot of ways. And, and a lot of times language gets in our way because of what God, what people mean when they say God and who or what they're talking about. So a lot of times the language will change, but the Eastern, because the Eastern is all about picture and experience it assumes something bigger. It assumes the divine. It assumes, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, this higher power. It assumes a God character and the, and the transcendent would actually be a great way of putting it for Easterners. Um, whereas the Westerner, because we're so scientifically based and definition oriented, we're trying to prove the existence of whatever we mean when we say God. And for the Easterner, it just is something totally different. Um, when it comes to how we describe God, we kind of focused on this earlier, but um, the Greek is focused on the nature of the being. What or who is this God? You know, what is he like? Who is he? Versus the Easterner is focused on the nature of the relationship. And again, that's just the Western 
perspective and how we like to take everything and make it abstract. That's just this platonic approach to the world where we take everything and we, we make it abstract and we hold it away from us and we examine it scientifically versus the Easterner wants to experience the thing and make it concrete. Uh, so the Easterner is going to talk about God and describe God and how, how this God relates. So if you were to take Genesis 1, which we were to talk, we're going to talk about that next week. But if you were to take Genesis 1, we love to focus on how creation happened, what happened, how it happened, and the science behind it. But the Easterner is much more interested in how God related with creation. So an Easterner is going to talk about the power of word because God spoke creation into existence. That's how God related in the story. Um, not the how, but the how did God interact with the story and how did we experience the divine? Um, so that would be an example of that. And then there comes to conversation about faith. For the Greek, faith is intellectual. Uh, we often talk about assent, mental assent. Uh, for, for the Westerner, faith is about creeds and doctrines and belief statements. Uh, for the Westerner, we love to proof text to support our belief. Just jump on almost any church's website. And this is starting to change a little bit today, but jump on a church's website. You'll probably find a tab that talks about their belief statement. You'll probably click another belief statement, and next to every statement, it's going to have a few proof texts, a few verses you can look up to prove why that belief is true. It's just how we interact with faith. Where for the Hebrew, faith is relational. Um, they're not going to try to define what that looks like because they have experiences with God. Um, they have experiences of and with God, and they're not going to try to explain how that happened. They're going to try to communicate what they experienced. And so you read a story about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, and there's no, there's no like addendum at the end of the story where they try to resolve all, they're just trying to communicate what Abraham experienced on that mountain. They're not trying to make sense of it. They're not giving you a blog post with three points that all start with the letter R. They're, they're just trying to tell the story because somewhere in that story, Abraham found a, a, a part of who God was. All right, to be fair, I think we can stop him right there. He has more to say. You can listen to it on your own. It's called the Bama Podcast. Um, but again, I was interested. I started listening. He started saying some things that I totally agree with him about and even highlight here on the Pluck Chicken. But as he gets into the text, we're going to see the glaring problem, and that is what he is going to do next. So, now that he has laid it all out, and we know where he's going, with that set of glasses on, that Eastern Hebrew pair of glasses that he's got, and again, I'm not opposed to that, he's going to come to the text. You know what? Let me change that metaphor. It's not a Hebrew pair of glasses. It's a Hebrew layer. I mean, you can only wear one pair of glasses at a time. And you look completely ridiculous if you try to go for two or you look like your grandma, you know, putting on her 
sun shields, so to speak, or sunglasses over top of her eyeglasses, whatever. So it's just a layer. My point is, it's not the most beautiful layer. It's like the envelope of a love letter. You want to get to the love letter. You don't really, I mean, yeah, your your girl may have written some cute things on the envelope. And sure, you're going to keep it. But it's not as important as what the love letter says. The little heart on the outside with your address on it. That's not what you put on your mantle and say, oh, my girl, she wrote me this letter. No, you're going to open it up because you want to see what she has to say. I don't even know if anybody writes letters anymore, but you catch my drift. Now, I want to thank you for your patience because you have listened thus far to what he's saying, and I want to be completely fair in letting him have a hearing. So now he's finally getting to the text, and that's what we're after. So everything that you have just heard really in the last hour has been the preface of a book. I hate prefaces. Nine times out of ten, I skip over them. I know that there's good information in there, but I'm not interested. I didn't buy the book for the preface. And usually, out of guilt, out of shame, I'll go back and read the preface after I've already delved into the book. But that is what this material has been that you have consumed thus far. So, with that being said, we're going to listen to what he has to say regarding Genesis chapter 1. Not the entire chapter, just a little bit. And then I'm going to play you somebody who has the right hermeneutic, who has opened the love letter, who's not just examining the envelope with the heart on it. He's going to open up that envelope and show you what I'm talking about. However, before we get to that, I want you to listen to the company that has sponsored this episode of The Pluck Chicken. Well, this episode of the Pluck Chicken Podcast is brought to you by Wittenberg Digital. Wittenberg Digital provides website construction, website hosting, and podcast hosting for the confessional community. With websites that are easy to put together, easy to use, and manage content, and that provide high availability of that content to your users without the need and the oversight of big tech. Several big tech companies have removed religious content from their platforms and servers and continues to push that agenda. Wittenberg Digital was built by liturgical and confessional nerds dedicated to keeping the digital face of Lutheranism alive as long as possible. So if you're interested in doing something with your website, I encourage you to check out Wittenberg Digital at wittenbergdigital.com where they are keeping the Lutheran voice online. So kudos to you for making it thus far as he's laid out the groundwork. It's like he's gone in and he's dug the foundation and he's put all the cinder blocks in place 
And now he's going to start laying the beams. Uh, so we're going to start in the beginning of Genesis. Bereshit bara Elohim is where the scriptures begin. Uh, scriptures begin uh, talking about this God whose name is Elohim. And uh, in your notes that we have, uh, your PDF, the presentation you can be looking at, we have in the Hebrew there, uh, Elohim written out. You can see it in the English. And we're told that in the beginning, God created. Now, the word for create is bara. Bara is this word for create. And so we hear that this Elohim is a creator. Now, I'm not going to interrupt him much, or at least I say that. But just so you know, Whenever you have in Hebrew, you have that I-M ending, that makes it plural. So right out of the chute, we see that there is a plurality with this God, Elohim, Seraphim, Cherubim. I know, I know, in the South, at least, we say Cherubim and Seraphim, Cherubim, Seraphim, Nephilim, if you're into that, that I-M ending is essentially our S on the end of a noun, making it plural. So, wow, I mean, just that. You're confronted with something completely different. And then, just to skip ahead a little bit, when Elohim says, let us make man, you're like, us? Who's that? Regardless, I'm getting ahead of what is being presented. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void, formless and empty in the NIV. Uh, The Hebrew there is tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu. And it's this idea of chaotic nothingness. I always like to explain it in my class as a... um, if you were to take nothing and put it in a blender and hit, and hit whip, you get tohu vavohu. And our Western self says, but wait a minute, you put nothing in the blender. But the Eastern self says, exactly. It's even chaotic nothingness. So in the beginning, the earth was tohu vavohu and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God, the ruach in the Hebrew the Ruach of God was hovering, merahefet is what the word there for hover, merahefet over the waters. And so we find out uh, in this first opening stanza here that this Elohim is a bara, a creator, and this Elohim is also a spirit. And God said, and so the next thing this God does is he takes on word. So this God is creator, this God is spirit, and this God is word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now he's going to read all of Genesis 1, and as much as I would love to let him do so, we're just going to save a little bit of time and just jump ahead. God saw all that he had made, and it was, in the Hebrew, tov meod, very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. 
goes into Genesis 2 for just a moment. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, as we listen to this poem, because that's what this is, almost every literary scholar I'm aware of uh, recognizes the poetry. Um, Some call it Sumerian, some call it, most call it Mesopotamian poetry. Some might even place it uh, in different cultures, Um, but it's, it's a poem. It's this ancient creation poem. But there are these refrains that as we listen to this story stick out to us. There are refrains that talk about evening and morning, which should stick out to us because it's not how you and I talk about that, Brent, is it? Not at all. We talk about it backwards. We wake up in the morning. Exactly. We end our day with the evening. Exactly. Morning and evening, that's a day. And yet this creation tale is telling us about evening and morning. So this refrain is something that sticks out, or at least it should to us. It seems backwards. Yet to me... Which no doubt is true, but yet to me, I I look at Good Friday compared to Easter Sunday. There's darkness, and then there is the beauty of the great new day. But, you know, whatever, whatever, let's let him go backwards. There's another refrain that that jumps out all throughout the, it was good, is what is said all throughout the poem. It was good, and God saw that it was good, and it was good, and God saw that it was good. And so, if we just kind of step back, we, we start to see that actually this poem is maybe not about the things that we might have been raised or have been taught that this poem is about because we have all kinds of problems. First of all, it's evening and morning, but second of all, uh, plants are created on day three, the day of, uh, separating the land from the sea, but the sun isn't created until day four, but the plants can't be created without the sun. Why not? I mean, that is not a big deal. This is God we're talking about. If he wants to create a plant in the middle of the Sahara Desert, he can do it. If he wants to create a plant in the Arctic, he can do it. I don't know. I'm always like amazed at this little, little, uh, I wouldn't even call it an argument. Just, so what? I wasn't there. But this is the divine script telling us, What happened? I have a hard time believing that a man got swallowed by a large fish and prayed a prayer from in there, or that a virgin gave birth to the Messiah. (laughs) I don't know. I just just think this is a a dead-end line of reasoning, but gratefully, he doesn't continue with it long. So how does that work scientifically, let alone the fact that the only way we've ever measured a day And all of human history has been the movement of, from one perspective, the sun, or our movement in relation to the sun. It's always been related to the sun. But if the sun isn't created till the fourth day, it raises the question of how do we even know the first three days are even days? Because the Lord said there was evening and there was morning, 
the first day. I mean, it's like the Lord is being very redundant so we don't get caught up in these little rabbit trails, dead ends. It really becomes clear the moment you start to look at this poem. This poem is not about the scientific reality of how creation was made. This poem is about something far deeper. And so if you just kind of step back, and if you remember our last podcast, we talked about the Easterner understanding the world through pictures and images. And if we stop reading Genesis 1 like a lab report, because it's not a scientific lab report. I agree. If we read it as the piece of literature that it is, and we step back, we notice this poem and we have to start asking a whole new set of questions. And so we might realize if we just look at it from a macro 10,000 foot level, we might recognize that this poem is about creating, obviously, and it's also about resting. It has this weird ending. It's all about creation, but then at the end of the story, God rests. And so this poem is about creating, but it also seems to be about resting. But see, a Lutheran would add the fact, and it's not an idea, but it is the fact that it's actually about baptism. I know, I know, because here you have the Word, you have the Spirit, and you have water. And from those three things, as it were, the Word, the Spirit, and water, what happens? New life. New life. Amazing. I mean, this is what the church fathers said. I'm not making this up. They looked at this and said, it's a baptismal text. But I don't think our boy is going to highlight those things. No, he's found something else to highlight. And so we continue to look at this poem because we want to know more about it. And if we look at this poem, we we start to notice that if we look at day five, fish go in water. And birds go in the sky, which means that day five corresponds to day two. And the sun, moon, and stars go in the place where there's light, which again was one of those questions. How did we have light without the source of the light? But nevertheless, we have day four corresponding to day one, day five corresponding to day two. And in fact, animals and humans are what inhabit the land. So day six corresponds to day three. This is correct. No doubt. What God did in the first three days is he created the space. Then in day four, five, and six, he filled it. It's no different than when a couple prepares for the birth of their child, the first child, usually. By the time the third or fourth or fifth child rolls around, he might get a drawer in the chest of drawers in the closet. Believe me, this is where we put one of our children. Because we were out of space. But for the first child, we created the space And then, praise be to God, we filled the space with a little baby. No different. And when you actually go back and start to look closely at this relationship, you realize that God really doesn't create uh, much of anything in this uh, actual narrative. What he does in the first three days is God separates. 
He doesn't create light and darkness. He separates light from darkness. He doesn't create the water and the sky. He separates water from water. He separates land from seas. And then in the last, uh, the next three days, four, five, and six, God fills the very three things in the same order that he's previously separated. Now, what this does for a Hebrew, if they see this story as a picture, is it draws this imaginary line straight down the middle of the story because day one corresponds to day four, day two to day five, and day three to day six. Meaning if you folded this story up in the middle, it would fold up on itself. And this is called in their world, it's called a chiasm or a chiasmus if you're reading scholastic literature. Great point. Chiasms are throughout our Bible, no doubt. I mean, what do we do when we want to emphasize something? We underline it. They didn't underline words. What do we do? Uh, on the computer, we italicize. We might put something in bold to, to make a point. They didn't do that. They didn't, they didn't have those. They had a chiasm. And he'll go on here to explain a little bit more about a chiasm. And chiasm means that the first part of the story mirrors the last part of the story. It can mirror it in two different ways. It can either be A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, meaning it actually mirrors each other, A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. Or a chiasm can also have the mirroring effect of a parallelism. It can be called an inverted parallelism or a parallelism. It can be A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. So it can go A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, or it can go A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. It can also be structured uh, almost visually so that that same A, B, C, C, B, A type uh, order you can actually see. A chiasm can be shaped like an arrow, either directly or inverted. And you'll see in the show notes in the presentation there, I've shown you a couple examples. A chiasm can be shaped like an hourglass, almost like an arrow pointing to the center. Or a chiasm can be shaped almost like a diamond, where it gets larger and then gets smaller again. But everything is driven towards the center. Did you know that a chiasm can also be placed like a chalice? (laughs) I will take the cup of salvation. Yeah, it can be placed like a chalice as well. It mirrors. It's like a story folded up on itself. Now, what's so interesting about Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 is not the easiest chiasm to start with, but it's where God chooses to start his story, is Genesis 1 happens to be both chiasms at the same time. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you look at your NIV Bible, Uh, Some translations don't do this, but if you look at the NIV Bible, it's going to show you the paragraphs. You might notice if you look at Genesis 1 that the first day of creation is a baby paragraph. The second day of creation is a mommy paragraph. And the third day of creation is a daddy paragraph. Followed by another daddy paragraph. Followed by a mommy paragraph. Followed by what? by what would be in day six, a baby paragraph, if it weren't for the creation of man. And that's what makes the Genesis chiasm slightly confusing, but we'll come back to that by the time we're done today. It's like the creation of man sticks out of this story like a protrusion 
out of the out of the narrative. And I wonder why. <laughs> it's because man is the pinnacle of creation. God creates everything that he creates, whether it be space or the stuff to put in the space for man. Man is the pinnacle. And of course, as you know, he is made in the image of God. Because the expectation is that day six would be a baby paragraph. So what I mean by Genesis 1 is both kinds of chiasm is the literary structure follows A, B, C, C, B, A. Baby, mommy, daddy, daddy, mommy, baby sized paragraphs. But the content of the paragraph follows A, B, C, A, B, C. Day one corresponds to day four. Day two corresponds to day five. Day three corresponds to day six. And if your head is starting to explode and pop, then you are understanding what we're talking about here. And listen, I'm not poo-pooing chiasms. They are beautiful, but they're not that mysterious. For instance, the Concordia Commentary Series. They haven't finished their complete set of volumes on the entire Bible, but they have produced some incredible ones. If there is a particular book of the Bible that you would like to study, get you one of those commentaries on that book of the Bible, you open it up and it'll tell you if there are any chiasms in that chapter. So again, not mysterious, Is it interesting? Yes. Is it life-changing? Does it point me to Jesus? Uh, uh, Just let him go on. Then you are understanding what we're talking about here. This is an incredibly well-put-together piece of literature, and I'm telling you, it's not a science lab report. It's not about how God created the world. It's not about monkeys and apes or seven literal days or 14. It's about something far wider and deeper about the nature of God, the nature of the world he created, and the nature of man. That's what this story is driving at. So if you were to go back and look at that poem one more time, if this is a poem, you should have a cadence. You should have a rhythm. You should have patterns. You should have numbers that jump out at you. And we've already talked about the refrains, these refrains that work as a a sort of cadence and a rhythm. It was good. It was good. It was evening. It was morning. But then there are also other patterns. We pointed out that there was three days that mirrored three days. So we would want to see patterns of three. Well, if you remember at the beginning of the poem, we had a threeness about this creator. This creator was bara, this creator was spirit, and this creator was word. So there was a threeness. Speaking of creation, we said this poem was about creating and resting. The word bara, the word for create, appears three in three different places in this poem. At the beginning, once in the middle, and then once at the end. And at the end, when the word bara appears, it appears three times in rapid fire in the last few verses. So we have all kinds of patterns of three. Three days of separation, three days of filling, a three-part nature to this Elohim, and a three 
mention of Barah at the closing of the poem. We would also look at seven days and we might expect there to be patterns of seven in the poem. That would be expected. When we look at the poem, we realize that the first verse in the Hebrew has seven words in it, seven times one. The second verse has 14 Hebrew words in it, seven times two. The word earth occurs 21 times in the poem, seven times three. Uh, There are 35 words in the seventh verse of the poem, seven times five. The word God is mentioned 35 times in the poem, seven times five. The phrase, it was so, appears seven times in the poem. And the phrase, and God saw, appears seven times in the poem. Now, as I heard this teaching taught, uh, the statement was made, if I see patterns of three and I see patterns of seven, the only logical question would be to ask whether or not there are any patterns of ten which we might chuckle at and think it's a funny question until we realize the phrase to make appears seven, uh, 10 times in the poem. The phrase according to its kind occurs 10 times in the poem. The phrase and God said occurs 10 times in the poem, three times in reference to people, seven times in reference to creatures. And the phrase, let there be, occurs 10 times in the poem, three times in reference to things in the heavens, and seven times in reference to things on earth. This poem is full of patterns. This doesn't surprise me. I mean, I'm not a numbers guy at all, but I do know that this text was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there's layers upon layers upon layers. So thank you or whoever you heard or whoever you studied for pointing these things out. That's great. But I'm not looking for patterns of three. And I'm not looking for patterns of seven or 10 or 46 or 52 or whatever it is. I'm looking for Jesus. Can you show me some Jesus? Threes, sevens, Tens. This is not a scientific lab report. It's not a scientific lab report. It's not a scientific lab report. It's not trying to tell us how God created the world. It's a chiasm. Now, how does the chiasm work? How is this burying a treasure for me to discover? Well, that chiasm points towards the center. And if you look at that diagram on your show notes, you're going to see how these chiasms are structured. And then I've added some notes myself to the next slide, and it shows you where the treasure lies. The entire chiasm points toward the center where the treasure is. You can often find a chiasm by identifying the bookends. Every chiasm will have its, its outermost, its furthest reaching points where the chiasm begins. And so you find these bookends at the top and at the bottom, and then you begin to work towards the center. And it's the bookends that are going to help you find the center where the treasure lies. Now, in the story of Genesis, you might remember that creation started with what, Brent? God creating lights. Okay. Before that. In the beginning. Okay. The earth was... Formless and empty. Ah, and what did we say tohu vavohu meant? Uh, wild and waste. Yes, and you put what in a blender? Nothing. Chaotic nothingness. Chaotic nothingness. Okay, now at the end of the poem, what does God do? 
He rests. Which means he does what? Nothing. So this poem is bookended by resting, or or by nothingness might be the more appropriate way of phrasing it. The story starts with nothing. The story ends with nothing. And so if you take this creation poem and you actually physically count Hebrew words, there's a Hebrew word that lies dead center in the middle of the poem. And the Hebrew word is the word moad. Now, in the old translations, we used to translate moad seasons. It shows up right where you would want it to. If you consider that there are these uh, seven creation days, you would expect the center of this poem to lie somewhere in day four. Well, in fact, on day four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars to mark the days, the years, and the seasons, or the moad, or I think as this new NIV translated it, the sacred time. Now, moad ends up being one of four words that we translate Sabbaths, or at least the idea of Sabbath, festivals, parties, resting. This is one of four words we use to talk about Sabbath, which is exactly what God does at the end of the poem and what he will call his people back to throughout the story is this idea of Sabbath and this idea of resting. If you've ever wondered why the concept of Sabbath is so important to the Jewish people, it's because the Bible begins with a massive poem about Shabbat. Okay. We have got to take up his teaching here on Shabbat at another time. But I think you would agree with me that I have been completely fair in laying out everything that he has wanted to do. Now, in the time that we have remaining, I want to turn to another teacher, someone who does the exact same thing that this guy is doing. He starts in Genesis 1, but there is going to be something completely different. Yes, there are layers to the text. And we spend all of our lives as Christians discovering those different layers. But if Jesus said, the scriptures testify of me, then darn it, you better be showing me some Jesus. And gratefully, what we're going to hear does just that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to flip the record here on the turntable and let you hear someone who points us to Jesus. I'm looking forward to this chance to talk to all of you and hear back from you about uh, the Old Testament and in particular how a Christian reads the Old Testament, because ultimately that's really what we want this to be about. It's 40 minutes in the Old Testament, but it's really 40 minutes in the Old Testament as a Christian, because there is certainly a distinctly Christian way of reading the Old Testament scriptures. So that's what we're all about. That's a little bit about who I am and looking forward to delving into uh, the scriptures that testify about our Lord. Uh, Over and over, when Jesus is teaching his disciples, when he's talking to the crowds, when he is discussing the scriptures, which for him were the Old Testament, for Jesus and for the early church, the Bible, their Bible was what we call the Old Testament. Uh, For them, the scriptures uh, consisted of 
the law and the prophets and the Psalms. When Jesus talks about the scriptures, he always presents these scriptures as the testimony concerning himself. You think of the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, probably the most well-known example. It's uh, the day of our Lord's resurrection. He appears to them on the road and uh, begins talking with them about why they're, they're downcast. And they describe to him what had just happened in Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus tells them they're, they're, uh, they're slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Notice the word all there, all that the prophets have spoken. And so he begins with Moses and then proceeds to all the prophets to describe the things that are written about himself. So we have in our Lord's own example, when he talks about the Old Testament, he's using it to teach people about who he is. Uh, he says elsewhere in, in the Gospel of John that these scriptures testify of me. So to kind of bring this back around to our approach to the Old Testament, it seems to me that if we're faithful to Christ and faithful to the gospel, then the question that we really should be asking of every single Old Testament chapter all the stories, all the Psalms, all the Proverbs, all the prophecies is one overarching question. And that question is this. How in these words is Christ talking to us about himself? If that's a question that's that's uh, driving our reading of the of the Old Testament, then we're starting out in the right direction. And chances are we're going to end up. Uh, where Christ wants us to be, because these are the testimonies of himself uh, in many and various ways. But they all point in one way or another to who he is and to what he's done for us. So page after page in the Old Testament, what you're hearing in, in various kinds of ways is a testimony of, of who our Lord is, uh, the grace that he brings to us. Really, the, the gospel itself is presented as something that is saturated Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, my goodness. That right there. We have gone to a completely different level here with what this guy is saying. I like that. I hope you do, too. One of the benefits of this particular approach to the Old Testament is that it cannot but enrich our understanding of the New Testament. Uh, I've often said that, really, the New Testament is the inspired commentary on the Old Testament. So it is the testimony of the, the evangelist and the apostles to the fact that the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, have been fulfilled in Christ. So if... If, if there is a New Testament, the New Testament is Jesus. It's not really a book. Christ is the New Testament. He is the New Covenant. And what we call the New Testament, this collection of writings, is uh, the inspired testimony of the Spirit to the fact that he is, in fact, the Christ that God promised to send and, and, and has sent. Now, I don't want to quibble with what Chad Bird is saying here, and I know he believes what I'm getting ready to say. 
But this is what's really beautiful. Jesus holds the cup filled with wine in that he says, this cup is the New Testament. We think the New Testament is the 27 books after that white, clean page in our Bible. That's what we say is the New Testament. And in some respects it is, but Jesus saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, not animal blood, my blood. Drink it. Drink it for the forgiveness of your sins. This cup is the New Testament, not the 27 books that we as modern-day Christians spend most of our time in. This cup is the New Testament. Incredible. So when we're reading the New Testament, if we're reading it as someone who has made the Old Testament his or her own, uh, if we've put ourselves into the Old Testament and the Old Testament into us, then when we approach the New Testament to to read it or to teach it or to, to preach on it, bringing this Old Testament life with us is going to open our eyes to the richness that's in the New Testament as well. And to say it a different way, the more you know the Old Testament, the better you're going to preach the gospel, the better you understand the gospel. Because apart from the Old Testament, the New Testament really, I mean, you might understand the truth, but you're not going to get the whole truth. You're going to only have a part of really the, the fullness that God wants to God wants to reveal. Uh, just a, a quick example of that. What is the, what you might think of as the kind of the foundational confession for the Christian? It's real simple. Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? We've all heard that. Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, if you unpack that basic Christian confession, you, you really can't understand the full truth of what's being confessed there apart from the Old Testament. Just take it word by word. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Okay, Jesus. Well, what is that? Well, it, it's a name. It's a Greek name. But it's based upon the Old Testament name of, of Joshua or Yehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. You can't really understand the name Jesus apart from its Old Testament counterpart in Joshua. Well, well who is Joshua? Well, he is, he is God's man appointed to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Well, that does nothing but give us a an even richer understanding of who Jesus is then. Jesus is the is the new Joshua who is baptized in the Jordan River in order to inaugurate our salvation and to bring us finally into the promised land of heaven itself. So to understand the name Jesus, you need to understand the name Joshua, but to understand Joshua, of course you have to be someone who is approaching it from the Old Testament. And then of course, Christ. So Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, what does Christ mean? Well, it's a Greek word, but of course it's based upon the Old Testament designation for the anointed one, the Mashiach or the Messiah. So you can't understand Christ apart from Messiah. Well, who is the Messiah? Well, he is certainly the one whom God appointed, whom God anointed to come and be our Savior. But you had Messiahs in the Old Testament. That is, you had anointed ones. You had kings who were anointed. You had priests who were anointed. So who is Christ as the Messiah? He is the one who is 
the greater priest, the greater king, anointed by God to bring about our, our salvation. So Jesus Joshua, Christ Messiah. But this Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, for an Israelite, if you hear the words Lord, you're immediately going to think of who the Lord is. That is Yahweh. Yahweh, the one who is, as he said to Moses in Exodus 3, I am who I am. And so we confess you are who you are. So just think about that. Think of the ramifications of that. Simple confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. Really, it's it's what we're saying is Joshua, Messiah, is Yahweh. Beautiful point. And I would even add, when Jesus says that he's the son of man, normally what we like to say is when he says he's the son of man, it focuses on his humanity. And then when he says he's the son of God, that focuses on his deity. Very simplistic, but that's, it's too simplistic. When Jesus says that he's the son of man, you got to go back to Daniel. He's not saying, you know, this is just the, the aspect of my humanity. When he says, I am the son of man, I mean, he said that when he was in his trials before Pilate and the Sanhedrin. What did they do when he said that? They ripped their clothes. They knew what this meant. It didn't mean that he was just humanity. It meant he was God. But you don't understand that to make the point unless you understand where the title came from and how it was originally used. Yeah, well, Genesis, of course, uh, is, uh, is not only the first book of the Bible, but uh, it, it really is the foundational book of, of the Scriptures. Um. Uh, for me, when I read especially the first three chapters of Genesis, uh, I, I see embedded within these chapters basically the whole biblical story. So everything that, that tells us who God is and what his attitude toward us is, uh, who we are as his, as his people and what it means to be in his image, uh, how God interacts with us, how he gives his gifts to us, what his goal is for us as as his children. And also added to that our our fall into sin and the impact that that has and what God promises and has done to uh, to save us from that. It's all there in the first three chapters of Genesis. And so in some ways, what you have after Genesis three is uh, just kind of an elaboration on what you already have in the in the opening chapters. So it, it is the the foundation of everything that that follows. Uh, Luther says somewhere that there's not a word in the old a word in the New Testament that doesn't in some way build upon and look back to the Old Testament. And and I would add I would I would add to that uh, that there's really not a word after Genesis 3 that does it in some way look back on and build upon what was was already there. So it's a book about beginnings, to be sure, but it's also a book about endings. Because already in Genesis, we have uh, the foreshadowed what we have pictured for us in Revelation. It, it's no uh, coincidence that Revelation talks about a new heavens and a new earth. 
Well, you can't really understand a new heavens and a new earth apart from the old heavens and, and the old earth. So Genesis presents to us not just how everything got started, but also how everything will, will end and how all this is brought together in, uh, in the Christ. So I, I, that's, that's my approach to Genesis. Uh, uh, as I said earlier, really the, the question that I ask over and over is, is what does this tell us about, about Christ and who he is and what he, and what he, what he does for us. And I think there's lots of material in Genesis one uh, where we can, where we can see that. It's amazing to me that really within these, this opening phrase, we already have uh, a hint or maybe even more than a hint, uh, an allusion, if you will, to who the son of God is. So let me, let me unpack that a little bit. In the beginning, in, in Hebrew, that's just one word, but a sheet. So three words in English, one word in Hebrew. When we, when we hear in the beginning, of course, the first thing we think of is this is referring to uh, how everything got started. This is the, the temporal beginning of creation. And I, I fully affirm that, uh, that truth. But, I, but there's also something, if you, if you scratch below the surface, if you, if you look a little bit deeper into this particular word, you see something else there as well. And the way I'd approach it is, first of all, by, by pointing out how the way Genesis starts is echoed in the way that John's gospel starts. So in, in, in Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, begins with the phrase in RK, in the beginning. And that's exactly how John begins his gospel, in RK. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John, in the way he starts his gospel, is already wanting us to hear who this Word is in relationship to, to Genesis. So we have that, that tie-in. But there's, there's even more. Uh, it, it's very eye-opening to read Genesis 1, 1 in relationship to uh, a section from the book of Proverbs. There's a, uh, a chapter in Proverbs, uh, chapter, chapter 8, which talks a lot about uh, wisdom. And in this particular chapter, uh, wisdom is personified. Wisdom is speaking as, as an I. So I did this and, and I did that. And one of the one of the verses has a has a pretty remarkable description of who this wisdom is and and uh, what this wisdom was was doing at the beginning. So this is I'm reading from uh, from Proverbs chapter eight and looking here at at verse twenty two. It says, uh, "This is wisdom speaking, the Lord." Possessed me the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Now what's fascinating about this is you have wisdom speaking here. And wisdom says that the Lord possessed me 
the beginning of his way. Now, the Hebrew word for beginning, reshit, which is used in this Proverbs verse, is the very same Hebrew word that's part of this opening word in Genesis 1.1. So Genesis 1.1 opens with ba-reshit, which means in the reshit, in the beginning. And then Proverbs 8, verse 22, wisdom says, the Lord possessed me the reshit of his way, the beginning of his way. Now, if you look at these two verses together, you not only hear this this uh, same use of, of reshit, same use of, as the word of the word beginning, but what's remarkable is who is saying that he is the beginning of the Lord's way. This wisdom that's described in in Proverbs chapter eight, the church has confessed for from the beginning that this wisdom who speaks is actually the wisdom from God that Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians. It's Christ himself. So he is the wisdom of the Father who talks all throughout Proverbs chapter 8 about he was the, the Father at the Father's side. He was there before creation. He was daily rejoicing in the, in the sons of men. But at the beginning of this, this, this discourse that, that wisdom has, he says that he is the reshit of God's way. Now, put this together. What you have in Proverbs, when you look at Genesis 1 through that, is really saying that in the beginning is not just a temporal beginning. It's actually saying that this beginning is a personal beginning. That this beginning is not just the start of time, but it is actually the one who is above time. It's wisdom himself, that is Christ. So if you read Genesis 1-1 from this perspective, you've already got Christ in the very first word of the Old Testament. Huh. So in the beginning is means in Christ, God created the heavens and the earth. It puts us on the right track. Because throughout uh, Paul's writings, he talks about how uh, creation was made for him and through him and by him in reference to Christ. So that fits with this particular understanding of a beginning that in Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. They were always they, they came into being for him and through him and in him and in him, all things hold together. So if we if we start not just. Genesis, but all of the scriptures with this understanding of God working through Christ, God working in Christ to bring things into existence, then we better understand how God continues to deal with us as his creatures in and through uh, through Christ. So how is that for a way to get started? The very first word of the Bible is pointing us to Christ. Right now, I feel like the primates in 2001, A Space Odyssey. I don't know if you remember that movie, but the primates are doing what primates do, and then all of a sudden one day, this obelisk, it appears. And they all, all the primates, they start going absolutely insane. 
jumping up and down and screaming. And my goodness, that's exactly how I feel when I hear this. It's like, bam, there it is. So you can stop at the Hebrew perspective of the things that you learned when you wear those Hebrew glasses, and I'm not, I'm not dogging them. But now finally, as we open up the book of Genesis, somebody points us to Christ. And as if any jumping primates need anything more to consume themselves with, We've just got a, a couple concluding thoughts here. Yeah, I think what John uh, is doing in chapter one is is presenting salvation from the perspective of creation. Uh, there's this theme that you often see throughout the Old Testament of a uh, an intimate, uh, inextricably bound relationship between creation and redemption. These aren't two completely separate categories of divine activity as if, well, over here, God is creator, but over here, God is, God is redeemer. No, actually what, what redemption is, is God recreating. God is fixing creation. That's what, that's what redemption is. But, but it gets even better than that because what John is, is telling us in chapter one is by using like light and darkness and uh, in the beginning and the word and all of all of these very Genesis uh, kinds of uh, images and language. He's telling us that what what we have in the word in Christ is not only a, a new creation, a fixing of the old creation, but it, it's a better creation that as, as the as the church fathers often would say, uh, that we gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. So we certainly lost a lot in Adam, but what we have in Christ is even better because not only are we restored to the original righteousness and innocence, but now we have a God who is one of us, who's actually become a creature while remaining creator. He's bound our existence to his to his own, uh, our very body and blood to himself, so that he's he's one of us. So yeah, what you have in in John one, in Genesis one, if you look at these two together, is John is telling us that Christ has come as the one who brings about a new creation in himself, because it's ultimately not just something he does, but it's who he is that's that's our salvation, and that's why he says that the word became flesh because it's in this enfleshed word that we have creation restored and it's by our incorporation into him that we ourselves are restored so we are we are made part of the word made flesh so that we are we're actually bound to god himself in the flesh of christ uh god's not ashamed of his creation uh, he made it. It's it's his. He never turns his back on it. Uh, in fact, he's even the even the incarnation, God becoming man. That is, it was nothing to blush about. Uh, God has always embraced the fact that his creation is is his. Uh, it's it, like the you know the ancient Gnostic heresy, which still is present in the world today in, in other forms. They they hold that creation is is uh, 
the work of, 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 of a lesser deity. It's beneath God. But Christians have always have always uh, affirmed that creation is good. It's very good. It's so good, in fact, that God himself became part of creation by being born as, as one of us. And to, to look at Genesis 1 in that, from that perspective, uh, you see already in God's creating man from the dust of the earth or a woman from the rib of man or placing man in a specific geographical location and giving him trees uh, from which he could receive fruit and this river that flowed out of the garden. He's, he's very concerned about giving man gifts through the things of creation. So he, God is always rooting his promises in the very stuff that we're made of. And there's fantastic comfort in that because I don't, I don't have to kind of, you know, sit around and, and somehow trying to, uh, uh, to force away every, every creaturely thing about me and go inside myself to find God. It's quite the opposite. Uh, God works in me by coming outside of me. So where do I find him? I find him in a, in the external word that, uh, that he's given to us. And I find him in the water in which he washes us in baptism. And I find him in the, the, uh, the bread and wine of, of the Lord's supper. He's put himself in these things of creation in order that in these things of creation, he might recreate us. So already in Genesis one, you see God working through the stuff of creation in order to not only create people, but to continue to give them life and to bestow upon them his, his promises. And we see this throughout the, uh, the Old Testament story. Well, there you have it, friends. As we conclude is, can you spot the difference? That's really it. Can you spot the difference between stopping at the Hebrew-Israeli perspective, which is all fair and good, or do you prefer to go a little bit deeper and have the Old Testament point to Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus says that it points to? You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss. If you'd like to support the work they do, go to their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the plucked chicken. Mm-hmm.